an investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we're pleased to welcome our special guest, Holly Gregory. Holly is at the pinnacle of America's top corporate lawyers. She co-chairs law firm Sidley Austin's global corporate governance and executive compensation practice. She's won just about every honor available to her. She chaired the American Bar Association's Corporate Governance Committee. The National Association of Corporate Directors named her one of the 100 most influential people in corporate governance 16 straight years. Ethisphere calls her one of the attorneys who matter. She's been recognized by Euromoney and by Legal 500. The National Law Journal says she was a, quote, white-collar regulatory and compliance trailblazer. Corporate Secretary Magazine gave her a Lifetime Achievement Award. Holly played a key role in drafting the OECD Principles of Corporate Governance and advised the Internal Market Directorate of the European Commission on Corporate Governance Regulation. And while most her assignments at Sidley are confidential, those that have been made public are eye-opening. She advised the Business Roundtable on its 2019 Statement on the Purpose of the Corporation, advised ICANN, the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, so you can thank her for the fact that your URL still works, and counseled Penn State's universities on its corporate governance reforms in the wake of its sexual abuse scandal. Holly was a sharp eye for current culture and a wicked sense of humor. Her video breakdowns of one corporate governance practices underlying HBO Max's succession have made her a social media star. And on top of all that, she plays a mean grass mandolin. So Holly, welcome to Outside In. A little overstatement on the mandolin. But not on the legal stuff. We normally open the podcast by asking about your origin story. But I want to split the question in two because I found this really interesting article from the upstate New York school district where you grew up. The article reads, Holly attended kindergarten in Hudson Falls Maple Street School, graduated from Hudson Falls High School in 1974, the fourth of five children of Marjorie and Tadus. She was challenged to keep up with the academic, artistic, musical, and social activist interests of her parents and many talents of her siblings, Elizabeth, Joan, Aldana, and Edmund. So this sounds like a pretty extraordinary household. Tell me about growing up in it. It was an idyllic, idyllic childhood, I have to say. Um, my father was an artist. He was a, a wonderful watercolorist, an Alton oil painter, who made a living supporting us as a machinist. My mother was a social activist, a social worker who was, she was blind, but she went to Columbia for grad school in the, in the 1940s and raised five children. 
doing subsistence farming in the back to the farm movement after World War II with my father. By the time I was born, they were no longer living on the farm with no running water and no electricity. They were the original hippies. They had moved to town, but on the outskirts of town, town, still rural. And it was just a delightful, you know, upbringing. They knew how to have a lot of fun with very little and valued certainly artistic and educational pursuits and social activism. My mother was a draft counselor. She was a Quaker and counseled people who were resisting the draft and was just very active in any number of things. And it was a conservative community, so we were outliers. But we had great fun with people coming to our barn for folk dances every Friday night. My parents had met folk dancing in New York City when my mother was in grad school. And then my siblings all carried on. We joke that I'm the black sheep of the family because I went on to a real like sort of corporate law job. But yeah, it was wonderful. So let's get to that corporate law job. You're at the peak of corporate lawyers in America. What were some say that? Well, it's true. I mean, what were some of the developments that got you there along with the professional developments? Really, I have to say some serendipity. I clerked for a judge on the Second Circuit, thought that I was going to be a litigator and do intellectual property and First Amendment litigation, went to a law firm to do that, and was co-opted to be the speechwriter for the senior partner who was Ira Molston. And he was very interested in corporate governance. And that's really how I started learning about the field and getting trained. But I'm an unusual corporate attorney in that I don't do transactional work. I advise boards of directors. And I come at it because of a a litigation background in my early days. So I do a lot of kind of investigations, board-driven work, a lot of crisis management. So it, it really, I have to say a lot of it was serendipity, being in the right place at the right time. I will confess that when I was asked to be the speechwriter for Ira and asked to continue in that role after my son was born, I did have a sense that maybe I was being mummy tracked, but I went with it and it, and it worked for me. Well, actually, you were at the previous law firm, Wild Gotcha with Ira, for about a quarter of a century, and, and, and you two formed this incredible dynamic duo. Moving to Sydney must have been a very considered decision. What made you decide to change firms? You know, I had been at Wild for 27 years, and I was curious about what would it be like to be repotted. I was feeling a little bit stale. And I also think when you grow up at a firm, you you get just like in a family, you get classified. And so I think I'd gotten to a point where my cue outside of the firm was stronger than in, inside the firm. And so repotting would just made sense. And then my partner at while, Yvette Listalaza, had, had left the firm and reached out to me. She's now the head of the firm here at Sidley. She's just a force of nature. And I had always worked with her on board investigations and just thought it would be a lot of fun to see what she was going to do over here. Let's take advantage of that long history looking at corporate governance in America. When you began your career, Green Mill was atop the issue list. It basically doesn't exist anymore. Other issues from that executive compensation, multi-share classes certainly still do exist. But from your point of view, 
What are the big changes in American corporate governance that you've seen from the beginning of your career till now? Wow, so many. So, John, you'll, you'll recall because you were there in the early days. You know, there's a famous quote that the board of directors was like parsley on the fish. It was decorative, right? It's not decorative anymore. It's clearly not decorative. But I remember back in the early 90s being in Ira's office when he got a phone call from a major board saying, we want to fi- fire the CEO. Can we do that? Well, there's no question by any board today that they are charged with selecting and and replacing the CEO. Directors are independent and not just on paper, but they're they're very independent and objective in the boardroom. They're very active in a a much different way than than when I started in this field. And and I think that's the big big news, that the board has stepped up. Is there more to do? There's more to do. Um, I think executive compensation remains an, an issue in many companies and, and trying to figure out how to best align compensation with performance in a way that's, that's also fair is a difficult one. And, and how do you compensate people when things are going wrong and you're in a crisis and you still need their attention and need to incentivize them? So it, it's a tough issue. We also have shareholder activism in a different, in a, in a different way. In the old days, it was green mail. Now it's it, 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 they're, they're looking for different things, but, but there is at times still a, a, a self-interest that's really not about the, the broad benefits to the corporation at large. Well, let's talk about broad benefits. Let's even go broader than that to the purpose of the corporation. Both you and I have written separately about the fact that historically the idea of an eternal live corporation, which could amass unlimited capital and therefore amass power over decades, was so frightening that originally one required a royal charter or an act of a government to create one. And it needed to be for a specific purpose, such as building a railroad or a canal, or because it was socially useful in some way. Now, of course, anyone can form a corporation. The purpose could be as nebulous as, quote, anything legal in the state of Delaware, end quote. And so the legal and societal quid pro quo, corporate status, for a specified societally useful purpose seems to have faded away. But the philosophical debate about the purpose of the corporation has never run away. In the last century alone, we've moved from the famous debate between Merrick Dodd and Adolf Burley to an era when Milton Friedman's philosophy, or at least one interpretation of that, dominated to today when the question of social purpose is front and center again. So where do you think we are and where do you think we're going in terms of business and social purpose? I really strongly believe that social purpose is at the heart of corporations and it's found in the goods and services that they provide. Every corporation is formed to provide a good or service that someone in society needs or wants. And that is a social good, filling that need. And, and so. To me, that's at the heart of things. And just focusing in on, on that, to me, helps cut through this debate. Now, in doing that, clearly, corporations need to be aware of the potential harms that they can cause and do what they can to mitigate those harms and mitigate those risks. But I take a very simple view about social purpose. The purpose is in the the pharmaceutical product that is being innovated, right? Or the delivery of the 
box of groceries on your doorstep. But that's a very circumscribed definition. And we have an accounting issue of not being able to account for externalities, positive, longer life because of that pharmaceutical or convenience or more time because of the parcel being delivered on your doorstep. Or negative externalities, pollution, greenhouse gas, social unrest, and if you're not a responsible social media platform. Is it just an accounting issue that we don't account for this well, or how should boards think about these issues? I think the corporation, as you point out, has perpetual life, potential for perpetual life. And so the long-term interests and reputation and relationships that the corporation creates so that it's able to provide those goods and services and succeed are critical. And for me, those externalities are about managing for the long term, right? So if we are causing great harm that's going to cause people to not want to do business with us, then we've got issues. If we're causing harm that's going to result in significant losses or compliance failures, that's a problem. So good corporations are cognizant of their role and their reputation and are managing for the long term and therefore are mindful where they're aware of those negative externalities are trying to minimize them and mitigate them. Well, aim is one dimension, but power and breadth are two others. Um, let me come at this a slightly different way. Chris Pitty, who's the CEO at High Meadows Institute, has been very adamant that the size and scale and concentration of private sector businesses today makes the top international companies almost like quasi-governmental organizations that affect your life and mine, whether they want to be or not, right? I mean, if you're a social media company, you affect elections and how public health emergencies play out as technology determines who you can communicate with what and what information you see and hear. Cybersecurity firms are involved in proxy wars, literally with national actors, to determine if the healthcare systems are power risky. Mining company and agricultural companies change entire landscapes and local economies, particularly in the developing world. And in some countries, including the US, governmental functions that are done elsewhere by governments, such as retirement security and healthcare, are somewhat outsourced to major corporations through the tax code or employment law. And then there are the increasing expectations on politics, like the Disney Florida situation. Are current boards of directors trained in that? I mean, let's face it, it's sort of a political. I mean, I know everyone does a skills matrix and experience matrix. And, you know, what do I need if I'm a pharma company? I need finance expertise and science expertise and a bunch of stuff on my board. But this seems to be a whole other skill set or training. And where are we in that process that boards become aware of these quasi-governmental functions, which they haven't sought necessarily, but are there? Back in the 1990s, Jim Wolfson at the World Bank was famously quoted as saying the governance of the corporation is now as important as the government of countries, right? Not new. I would think even before then, corporations have had a huge influence for eons. I take your point. I 
am concerned if people think that the answer is to put politicians on board. I'm not convinced the politicians are doing a really good job of any of this either. I do think that corporate boards need some input, whether it's a member of the board or advisors to the board, people in the senior executive team who are able to look at the broader impacts in the world and consider, you know, these kinds of issues, these public policy issues that are having impact. But I'm, I, I would be the last person to suggest that the solution is that we need politicians on the board. I wasn't suggesting politicians on the board. I was, I was trying to get a sense of how cognizant boards are of these impacts on, on local, on, on individuals and entire societies. And does it change how they think? Every board? I, know, I don't know every board. The boards that I'm working with are thinking that some of them have committees that are focused on these issues. Some are doing it in the full board setting, thinking about the issue of public policy. Where do the values and interests of the company and the impacts of its actions have an effect in, in the broader society? And are those the effects that they want to have? And that conversation does go on, certainly. now. I think in, in many boards, they're bringing in outsiders to help them think about that. They have people in the executive team who are thinking about that. There are some boards that do have former regulators and politicians on the board. You see that more in highly regulated industries. But I think that it's already happening. I mean, you know, this this question about woke corporations. Corporations exist in the world and the people who are running them, both in management teams and in the boardroom, are cognizant of what is going on. In and they're not, it's not as if you're in a back. Move on to something a little different. You recently did a series of videos in which you provide corporate governance analysis of the hit dark comedy succession. You're smiling. Your videos are incredibly popular, more than a million views. And you're obviously having fun doing it. What made you decide to do it? And what's the strangest thing that's come out of it? Well, it's really only one video. I wish it was a series, but Wired Magazine approached me and asked me if I would break down all of the corporate transactions in HBO's succession. And I thought it would be a lot of fun. And, and it was. It was a lot of fun. We haven't done, I, I would love to do season four because it just ended. The other interesting fact is my husband is an actor and he plays one of the members of the board of directors on Succession. So, although that had nothing to do with my, my Wired thing. It's just been fun to, to watch how people comment on it. And it's just been a fun other thing to do. So use some creative juices. Have you heard anything from the writers or the production company? No, no, not at all. What do the other lawyers in your firm think about it? They like it. They like it. In fact, on Monday, we're doing a program, we're doing a panel where we're going to do it all through a, a succession analysis. Uh, it's fun. It lightens things up. Other area of fun. I understand you play the mandolin. How's that going? Are you, are you in any bands? Well, I just had my debut with the Sibley Rock Band at our annual partners retreat. 
where I played uh, Losing My Religion by R.E.M. That was fun. But it's it's going slowly. To me, the mandolin, it's my golf game, right? It, it's the thing that I'm just constantly trying to think about how, how can I improve. And it's a great source of relaxation. There must be something about bluegrass instruments or instruments traditionally associated with bluegrass and corporate governance. Um, George Dallas, who for many years was the head of policy the International Corporate Governance Network. He was now with uh, the European Center for Corporate Governance. Plays banjo in a bluegrass band. Are you t- are you going to get a guest gig on the next Archway Mountain Boys uh, concert? That would sure be fun, wouldn't it? Yeah, I like bluegrass. I play some bluegrass because it is such a you know mandolin vehicle. Um, I think the definition of a bluegrass band is it has to have a mandolin in it because Bill Monroe, who's the father of bluegrass, was a mandolin player. But I love Choro, you know, Brazilian uh, tunes and classical and jazz. Right now I'm trying to improve my my jazz techniques. Let's finish with some short questions and answers. What's exciting to you right now? What are you passionate about? What makes Holly Gregory want to get out of bed in the morning? I love solving problems and helping in a crisis. And so those are the exciting projects for me when I have a client who has a crisis and I can help them find a pathway through it. Are you an adrenaline junkie? I think it's almost the opposite of adrenaline because I get really calm in the situation and there's a lot of adrenaline going on around me. And my role is to figure out the pathway and get people calm and focused so we can deal with the, the crisis. Great segue to the next question. How do you relax? play the mandolin. I play the mandolin and, and, you know, I have a little dog and I'll be in my home office playing the mandolin. And if anybody comes in and interrupts me, he gets me because he's channeling me. Okay. You play the mandolin. What music do you listen to? Right now I am listening to Mike Marshall and Katarina Lichtenberg. Um, they have an album called third journey, which has a mix of classical and other other tunes, and they are both world-class mandolinists. He is new grass, jazz, joro, and she is one of the leading uh, classical mandolinists, and they're a, they're a married couple. I'm also listening to Rhiannon Giddens, who I am a huge fan of, and had the pleasure of meeting a couple months ago when she was at um, Montclair State University at, for a master class. What are you reading right now? So I'm going to confess my guilty pleasure. I um, periodically revisit Jane Austen's novels. And so right now, I think for maybe the 14th or 15th time, I'm reading Pride and Prejudice. It's wonderful. Are there any modern authors who you think echo Jane Austen? No. I guess if there were, you wouldn't be your 14th or 15th time reading Pride and Prejudice. If you could be on vacation right now, where would you be? I would be in Sicily at a mandolin retreat. And I'm going there in, in late August. So, yeah, Sicily is my one of my happy places. Last question. A little personal philosophy. If you could magically tell everyone in the world one thing, what would you tell them? I'd pass along a piece of advice from my father-in-law, who was a wonderful man who helped many people. And when asked this question, he said, my advice to you 
is if you see someone who needs help and you can help them, help. And that's how I lived this life. Great advice. Our guest today on Outside In with John Lukumnik has been Holly Gregory, a marvelous corporate governance lawyer at Sydney, Boston, someone who has counseled some of the countries and the world's most important corporations and regulators and who uh, stays calm in the midst of my questions, corporate crises, and everything else. Thanks so much, Holly. It was great to talk to you. Thank you, John. Fun catching up. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John Lukomnik, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor Ohingasa, John Lukomnik executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.